Well, dear brothers and sisters, you may be seated. My name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Hagerstown Church. And uh, just, I'm just so glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, a dear sister shared with me, Chris, you're always smiling, which I, she sees me when I smile. Uh, but the reality is, I'm just so happy to see everybody. And my response to her was, well, dear sister, I'm just so happy to see you. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I'm so happy to see all of you this morning. Uh, we're going to uh, turn our attention now, uh, not only to welcome everybody, but also to say goodbye to a few dear friends. So kids, um, if you are in Blue Station, ages three to five, uh, you are going to exit uh, house right. You're going to follow Mr. Corey and Miss Micah, uh, and you're going to be going to the Blue Station, Gray Station. If you're six years old up to fifth grade, you're going to follow Mr. Matt and um, Miss Marcia, and today is going to be a good day. And so... Kids, you're going to go this way. Parents, if you uh, are new and you've not, um, uh, you're not familiar with the children's area, there are volunteers back there. If you'd prefer to take your children to the children's area, our children's area is safe and secure, and uh, volunteers will help you to uh, uh, get your kids signed in there. So, uh, kids, we love you. And uh, parents, uh, you'd be encouraged to ask your children this morning what they learned about the goodness of Jesus. Uh, brothers and sisters, this morning, um, if you are visiting with us for the first time, we have been in this brief series on our church covenant, uh, a, a covenant being a collective promise, an agreement that two parties make with one another to bear certain responsibilities and to enjoy together certain blessings. Maybe sometimes when we think of the term covenant, we think of our homeowner's covenant. We need to make sure our lawns are mowed and our uh, snow is shoveled, right, in order to make sure that the sidewalks are nice and clean. But covenants are a deeply biblical idea. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at specifically our church covenant, a collective agreement that we've made with one another, which really is just simply the various commands and promises of the New Testament and the, and the various passages of Scripture that we've just distilled to promise one another, to encourage one another on this journey to conformity to Christ-likeness. Uh, Pastor Josh began the sermon series uh, looking at this promise that we've made that we would submit ourselves to the authority of Christ. If you profess faith in Christ, then you have professed that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is worthy of our submission and faith. Uh, we uh, then looked at, uh, as our dear brother Jason uh, led us uh, to consider that we would work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace amongst one another. Uh, Brett so helpfully last week walked us through how we are to walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. This morning, we're going to look at our fourth principle, which is simply also the main idea of my sermon this morning to you, and I trust and pray that this would be encouraging for you, which is... We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. Again, I'll just uh, read that back to you. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. The irony is not lost on me that I am up here this morning telling a bunch of people who are gathered and praying, hey, you should gather and pray. Don't stop doing this. So, we promise one another that we will not forsake this gathering, that we will continue to pray for ourselves and, uh, and others. There are two responsibilities that we want to look at from our passage of Scripture here. We're going to look first at Hebrews chapter 10, and then we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 6. So, very creatively, I thought long and hard about this, our first responsibility is that we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And then our second responsibility we'll consider, again, very creatively, we will not neglect to pray for ourselves and others. Now, our first responsibility, this, 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 this promise we've made to one another that we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Before we turn to the particular passage of Scripture, I uh, just want to quickly ask uh, you to consider something. This gathering of ourselves together where every Sunday we set aside a couple of hours to come together in this building and we, uh, uh, we engage in this activity of assembling together to sing, to hear some scripture read, to hear the scripture preached. 
Friends, is what we're doing right now simply just some antiquated religious exercise? Is it really worth scrambling in the morning to get everybody fed and dressed and out the door, making sure that our kids are ready and we're good to go? Couldn't we just stay home and relax before the arrival of the dreaded Monday? I think some of us, our blood pressures probably rise when we think about the unread emails that are waiting for us on Monday. In our highly technological age, couldn't we just skip the commute and just live stream the service at home? Uh, if you uh, have read any sociological uh, surveys or polls, uh, maybe from the Barna Group or the Pew Research Group, you'll see that there's a consistent decline in our society of church attendance as well as church membership. There's a lot of reasons for that. Surveys and polls aren't exactly the most accurate, but most studies are showing that uh, more Americans are going to church less, more Americans are identifying as church members less, more Christians are identifying as church members less. I listened to a podcast recently that talked about how um, in our culture right now, in this hyper-polarized age where everybody is in one camp or another and they're just very quick to identify themselves in certain tribes, um, what we've seen is that more Americans in this generation are involved in a church community less than the previous generations. And so what we've seen is that the culture is promising very um, superficial forms of community, maybe in the form of social media or you know, various different affinity groups. But what you see is that uh, it, rather than finding church community locally amongst the people who are represented in your community, uh, we very quickly turn to the internet and hopefully find somebody that's going to agree with whatever it is that we agree with. Right? And so we're seeing this great disconnect amongst the community locally uh, as well as a decline in church membership. I, I thought this was a, a really astute observation. But I think, uh, even with all these sociological uh, evidences to show that, hey, you, people should find community in a local church, I think there's much more that we'll see in the scriptures about attending and assembling ourselves together than just simply finding a good group of friends that we can connect with throughout the week or just finding some general uh, filling up of ourselves so that we can have a happier week. I believe, as we look in the text this morning, that the scriptures will show us that one of God's appointed means to strengthen his people and to sanctify his people and to help his people persevere by faith is by the assembling of ourselves together. This is God's appointed means for all of us to endure to the end. There is just, there is just no substitute for the extraordinary work of God in the ordinary gathering of the church assembled. Now, uh, look with me in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is found towards the end of the Bible. Uh, you'll, uh, you'll find that the, the larger chapter, or the larger numbers are the chapter numbers, the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. Uh, you can also follow along uh, on the screen with me, but Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. Uh, you can also uh, grab a copy of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. You can also read along on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here we get this very clear command that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. This, this concept of assembling of ourselves together, the concept of God's people gathered, is not a modern idea, nor is it a uniquely American practice. God's people have gathered since the beginning. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve with physical bodies and walked with them in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Deuteronomy chronicles how God gathered the people of Israel in the promised land and instructed them to assemble regularly for worship. Consider, friends, in the incarnation, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took upon himself human flesh so that he could physically be with us. That's John chapter 1, verse 14. And it's this same Jesus who promised to build his church in Matthew 18. The Greek word that Jesus used was 
ecclesia, which literally means assembly. He didn't say that he was going to build a temple. He didn't say that he was going to build a group. He said he would, he would build the ecclesia, the assembly. The nature of that which the Lord Jesus has promised to build involves the physical gathering of his redeemed saints. God's people have been gathering since the very beginning and will continue to gather well after the end. In Revelation chapter 7, we're given this preview of God's uh, uh, people assembled in the new heavens and the new earth where the, the, the writer John says that he saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God's people have gathered since the very beginning. God's people are gathering even presently. And we, in the end and well after the end, will continue to assemble ourselves together, communing with God and with one another. But in the meantime, until we get to see Revelation chapter 7 actualized and fulfilled, we are here now. We gather for worship today. We gathered for worship last week. We'll continue to gather, Lord willing, next week. But gathering for worship, this assembling of ourselves together, it is not just an add-on feature of the Christian life. This is not something that we just get to selectively say, yeah, I'm going to come today, but I'm not going to come those weeks when I don't like hearing what the preacher is going to preach on. The assembling of ourselves together is a, ref is a reflection of this new Christian DNA that the Lord God has now given to us. It's a part of who we are as a redeemed people. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and then again in chapter 14, the Apostle Paul uses phrases like, when you come together as a church, right? And then he uses again the phrase, the whole church comes together. So the, the picture that we're getting from Paul's language is that the church is scattered and then on the Lord's day, the church scattered gathers and then scatters again and then the church gathers again. This has been the repetitive practice of the Christian church since the inception of the Christian church. Ecclesia, the assembly. So what are we supposed to do when the church is assembled? Well, the scriptures give us uh, some very clear instructions. Local churches are to engage in specific activities that the New Testament writers have instructed us that can only be done if the saints are meeting together. So, for example, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, we are to teach and admonish one another. Notice that Paul does not say, teach and admonish yourself. We are to teach and admonish one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul encourages his pastoral protege, Timothy, to continue to read Scripture publicly. In our highly individualized approach to worship in this culture, many of us will think, well, I've got to prioritize my quiet time, which is perfectly helpful. But Paul is saying here, read the scriptures publicly. We gather together and assemble ourselves together so that we can hear the word of God read because then our souls and our hearts will be fed and strengthened, not by ourselves, not by the things that impress us, but simply by the word of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25. I'm going to point back to this passage repeatedly, so hopefully you will hear this come through. But we are to encourage one another. We are to encourage one another. It's very difficult to encourage someone privately when you don't see them or connect with them. You may be able to send an encouraging text message or make a phone call, but phone calls can be missed and text messages can go unread. But when we see a brother face to face, there's no way that we can miss this opportunity to encourage them unless we just don't go and encourage them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. When the church is gathered, we are to share the Lord's Supper. So, these are various responsibilities that the Christian church is to engage in together when we are assembled. So why would the scriptures and our church covenant emphasize this need to gather as a church? Why make such a big deal about this? And we can listen to a sermon online. We can really find any type of preacher we want to find in our podcast culture. 
But why make this such a a point of emphasis that we would include it in this church covenant? Well, the picture the New Testament writers paint of this gathered assembly is that the church gathers as a blood-bought people who are devoted to the worship of God by faith in Jesus Christ. The church is not simply just this political institution that we might affiliate ourselves with or this local people that uh, you know, we're very similar to. The church is a blood-bought people who are devoted to the worship of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And this assembly, this blood-bought ecclesia, is unlike any other assembly in the world because it is an assembly that has been set apart from the world, that has been consecrated from the world by the Lord Jesus. It's an assembly that is committed not to advance our own individual efforts or purposes or agendas, but it is an assembly that is committed to encourage one another, to advance the agendas of one another, and to encourage one another to endure by faith. It's an assembly that serves as a holy embassy that represents the character of God to an unbelieving world and heralds the message of her good king, Jesus Christ. We are to then consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day draws near. Now, Hebrews chapter 10, we're in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 25, which means that we've got nine and a half chapters before we actually even get to this passage. So in order to kind of reorient ourselves to where we are in this particular passage, how did we find ourselves here? Well, I think a little bit of context would be helpful. It's important to remember here that the letter to the Hebrews was written to exhort the early church audience of primarily Jewish believers to persevere in the Christian faith to not turn back to the sacrificial system and ceremonies of the Old Covenant, right? So the church who received this letter, which is basically a 13-chapter-long 13 13 sermon, they, were, they faced a unique phenomenon. So these uh, Christian believers who once would regularly assemble with the rest of the gathered church, they suddenly abandoned the gathering altogether, Many of us have experienced the same. Saints who we once saw regularly gathering with us, they just don't show up anymore. And sometimes we know why they might not be showing up. Other times we're just left wondering, where are they? How are they? Maybe they went somewhere else. There are many legitimate reasons why Christians might be unable to gather with the church. Military deployments may require someone to be stationed far from home for a period of time. Some may deal with sickness or health issues preventing them from attending, Uh, whether that's giving birth to a baby or whether that's uh, a a bad and painful back that makes it just unbearably painful to get out of bed one morning. Elderly saints may be unable to physically attend for various reasons uh, related to health. Others may have moved from one area to another area. But I don't think that these types of situations are what the writer of Hebrews had in mind. Because he, he clearly says, as is the habit of some, re- regarding the neglecting of, our, uh, of gathering together, what this clearly means then is that some had gotten into the habit of forsaking the gathering altogether. And so if, they for, if they're forsaking the gathering altogether, then they are thereby forsaking to stir up one another to love and good works and encouraging one another. They're just not doing these things because they've forsaken the gathering and they have tragically turned back to the old way, to the old covenant, rather than keeping their eyes on the Jesus who has inaugurated a new covenant. They would rather be doing something else. They have turned back. But when we today read this letter to the Hebrews, we've got to understand that this is not a technical manual on how Christians can apply some of the Jewish system and practices to our faith today. In fact, if you took, and some estimates say if you read the book of Hebrews, it would take you about 50 minutes. If you took about an hour and read through the letter uh, uh, to the Hebrews, you're going to see one overarching theme of Jesus Christ. 
This letter is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. By the time we get to our passage here, not neglect ourselves together. So I'm going to give you a very quick rundown of the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1, the author persuasively argues the supremacy of Jesus over the angels. Some apparently were starting to think that there were angels that were uh, were Jesus over the angels. In chapter 2, the author shuts that argument down and shows the supremacy of Jesus over the angels. In chapter 2, he explains that Jesus is the founder of salvation, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God who has made propitiation for the sins of the people. If you want to turn back to the old system, you're not going to find forgiveness of your sins and the satisfaction of God's requirements in the law in the sacrificial system because Jesus is the high priest who has made propitiation. In chapter 3, we're shown that compared to the greatest man in all of Israel's history, Moses, Jesus is greater which would be a very inflammatory subject to say and to, uh, and to assert in a Jewish context. Moses was a faithful servant. Jesus is a faithful son. Three chapters in, have you noticed a theme yet? In chapter four, we're shown that Jesus is our great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness and who lifts the burden off his people and gives them rest by faith. Chapter 5, Jesus is the satisfactory high priest who became the source of eternal salvation to all who come to him. In chapters 6 through 8, we're shown that Jesus comes from a superior priestly line and he alone is the guarantor of a better covenant. Eight chapters in, have you noticed a theme yet? In chapter 9, Jesus is the superior sacrifice and the mediator of a new covenant. And now in chapter 10, we're shown that unlike the Levitical priests who would have to stand daily and offer repeated sacrifices, Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Do you notice the difference? One group of priests would remain standing offering sacrifices. This great high priest sat down after he offered a single sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews encourages Christians to consider the supremacy of Christ and to hold fast our confession. And what is this confession? Our confession is Jesus. So now we come to chapter 10, and we see in a couple of verses right before our primary passage, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up and to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see a theme here? And I remember several years ago, Uh, uh, after um, I received my green card and was legally allowed to travel outside of the country with the great confidence knowing I could legally enter the country again, my first trip outside of the, or sorry, my second trip outside of the country was going back to my mother's land, India. And uh, I remember we uh, were literally in the city where my family's from in Kolkata. Many of you might uh, know the city uh, called Calcutta. Maybe you're familiar with um, Mother Teresa and the work that she's done in Calcutta. But we went to this Hindu temple called the Kaligat Temple. Uh, Kali being a, uh, the goddess of destruction. She's the destroyer. And when we uh, just kind of toured through uh, uh, the Kaligat Temple, one of the th- things that we noticed was, for me, familiar smells. All of the food and all of the sweets and all of the colors and everything in there was very familiar. I grew up in a Hindu home. But something that we noticed when we got in there was there was this great assembling of Hindus And what we noticed was there was about to be a religious practice that was about to be engaged in. It was going to be the sacrifice of an animal. 
And so being the only member in our group that could understand Bengali was translating for our friends uh, in this evangelistic mission trip that we took, but there was uh, an effort to sacrifice an animal and to find health and healing in the sacrifice of this animal. This, this black goat would be sacrificed um, in order for this family's elderly family member to be healed. And so without getting too graphic, this goat was dragged in and the, and the goat was sacrificed, and, and, the, and the blood was poured. And uh, w- w- one of the things that we noticed was uh, Hebrews chapter 10, and, or Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, just spoke so clearly to this very graphic um, ex- example and practice that we saw. But what I noticed was, when the practice was over and everyone dispersed, the assembly just kind of withered away and just, everybody just left, no one walked out with confidence knowing that the individual would be healed. They were hopeful, but there was no confidence. Friends, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we have this confidence in Christ. All of this theology that is pointing us to, the, to chapter 10 is to build our assurance of faith that we would see Christ and not wonder, are my sins really forgiven? No, We have confidence to enter the presence of God, not by our own efforts, not by what we bring to the table, not by the sacrifice that we begrudgingly drag to the table. We have confidence because Jesus opened the way for us through the curtain, his own flesh. And not only do we have a a great high priest who is going to offer the sacrifice, we have a great high priest who welcomes us. He brings us in. He sprinkles us clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies are washed with pure water. And now we consider how we are to stir one another up. Do you see how all of this focus on the supremacy of Jesus then leads us to the activities that we must engage in? We gather for the supremacy of Christ. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapters 11 through 13 show us we don't uh, walk with God by our own merits or sacrifices, but only by faith in Christ's satisfactory sacrifice. 13 chapters later, have you noticed a theme? Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is supreme. This letter is a rallying cry for Christians to trust in Jesus alone and no other system to see him as superior to the old system and to endure onward. The question that many churches have been asking, uh, particularly in these last couple of years, is do we really even need to gather We live in this technologically innovative and advanced age. There's so many ways that we can physically see one another without physically being next to one another or assembled together. Do we really need to gather? Brothers and sisters, the scriptures will show us that church is not just an activity that we add to our Christian experience. We're going to consider three reasons why we gather uh, as we consider this responsibility of not neglecting. The first reason We gather to extol the faithfulness of God. We gather to extol the faithfulness of God. We can find great encouragement today to remember that God's faithfulness is not random, nor is it haphazard. God's faithfulness is specific. What has has God been specifically faithful to? Chiefly, himself. God has been faithful to deliver upon the promises that he has made to his people, namely that the nations of the world would be blessed by the seed of Abraham. And who is the seed of Abraham? Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we are in Abraham. God's faithfulness is not dependent on how faithful we have been. God's faithfulness is dependent upon his own perfect character. God is faithful even when we are not. Friends, how have you experienced God's faithfulness? Maybe it was a need that you had that was met after much prayer. Maybe you've experienced God's faithfulness in a season of difficulty and trials where other saints have come along beside you to bear your burden with you. On the other hand, does your confidence in God's faithfulness shake when he does not answer your prayer in the way or the timing that you would like? Is your confidence on God's faithfulness dependent upon whatever situation you find yourself in? 
This will be such an edifying conversation for you to have this afternoon with a fellow member over lunch. How have you experienced God's faithfulness? Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to consider God's faithfulness as you remember Jesus. What greater example of God's faithfulness can we think of when we consider the gospel? Each week, we gather to help one another to extol God's faithfulness, to praise him for his faithfulness, to remember, and by remembering, what Christ has done for us that we could not accomplish on our own. One author so helpfully said, Amazingly, Christ was made like us in every way, though without sin, so that in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he could fulfill all righteousness on our behalf and fully pay the penalty for our sin against God as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What assurance it is for us to know that Jesus has not only finished the work in his life and death on the cross for our justification, but that he is also even now sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Because Jesus is Lord in his person and his work, we can have full assurance of our hope until the end. And by faith, we confess the last three lines of the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. God has been faithful. So we gather to praise him and extol his faithfulness. A second reason why we gather is we gather to encourage each other. I think many pastors and church members agree, especially in the last couple of years, uh, which have just shown us just how much we need encouragement, not just ourselves, but how others need encouragement. And I think the writer of Hebrews understood that well, so clearly that he commands us to do just this, to encourage one another. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus warned his disciples that in this world, you will have trouble. And many of us have gathered this morning very clearly understanding this truth that Jesus shared. We have experienced great trouble. But in John 16, 33, take heart. Jesus uh, continues, uh, he follows up this warning that we will have trouble. He follows up this warning with encouragement. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Whatever difficulty or trial that we might be facing right now, Jesus doesn't specifically say what kind of difficulty or trial we will face. But Jesus tells tells us, in this world, you will have trouble. With our trouble, with our difficulties, with our very many uh, uh, trials that we face, what are we to do? Our natural inclination might be, we need to solve this problem. We need to remove this trial. Jesus' response to this, rather, seems to be, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Friends, you have great encouragement now from the very words of Jesus Christ. Whatever difficulty you face, take heart because he has overcome the world. When encouragement is absent, what fills that vacuum is not peace and joy, but discouragement and even despair. But Jesus leads his people to encourage his people just in the way which he did. We don't simply just gather together to sit quietly for an hour and then shuffle out the door to go get lunch. We gather to encourage one another. Brief conversations before the service, in the hallways, after the service, a friend waving from across the room, brothers and sisters asking how your week has been, asking how they can be praying for you, checking in on a grieving sister, following up with a brother who's been away due to sickness, thanking a friend for their kind words, inviting a family over for dinner, to encourage them, and to get to know them more. These are just a few examples of the kinds of encouragements that we can share by gathering together. As I was preparing this week, I read a really helpful article uh, by Dane Ortland. Ortland said uh, these words. He said, the mere presence of other Christians has a fortifying effect on our souls beneath what we're even able to consciously recognize. 
That's one reason the Bible exhorts us to meet together. We are Christ's very body, organically connected to each other, the life and strength of Christ himself flowing into us through one another. Friends, as, in, as individual members of the body of Christ, we are interdependently connected to each other, not by happenstance, but by God's sovereign, wise design. You may be a strong and mature believer as an individual, but the scriptures would testify that we are all stronger together when we are together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, said, the physical presence of other believers is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. There's a reason why I'm so happy to see saints every single Sunday, those who I see on a regular basis and those who I see again after a period of absence. Your presence, personally, is a source of incomparable joy and strength for me. And I believe, whether you've recognized it or not, but I believe you would agree as well if you take time to ponder that. How are we to stir up one another than in love and good works and encouraging one another if we don't show up, if we don't know who our fellow members are, if we don't know how they are? Have you noticed uh, maybe a member or several members who've been absent for a few weeks or even a few months? Do you know why they've been absent? Maybe they've been dealing with sickness. Maybe they've been dealing with discouragement. Consider taking your membership directory, members of Hagerstown Church, and reach out to these brothers and sisters who you have seen have been absent. You can ask them how they're doing. You can pray for them. You can encourage them to gather with the church again. Maybe you're someone who's been visiting with us for some time or you're you've been attending for some time, but you haven't joined the, this local body and membership. Might I encourage you to read the church covenant in the back of the pew Bibles in front of you? Would you pray and join this interdependent body so that you too may encourage the saints and be encouraged by them as well? Read the covenant. Pray. Ask God what he would have you do according to his word. I believe he will challenge you and encourage you to join the body to encourage one another. How then can we encourage one another on this pilgrim's journey? If you read through the New Testament uh, epistles, uh, just consider in, in how in so many instances the authors found some way to encourage the church just in the opening of the letters. Pray that God would make you an encourager. Pray that God would show you who to encourage. Your membership directory will help. Become an expert at finding evidence of grace in the lives of those around you and bring those things to the attention of those around you. Paul in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It's a very interesting description here that your speech ought to always be gracious. We, we, we fall short oftentimes, but this is how our speech ought to be, seasoned, that it may uh, give grace to those who hear, uh, which is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse uh, 29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That's going to include corrupting jokes. That's going to include corrupting speech. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But what kind of talk should come out of our mouths? But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We gather to encourage each other. We gather to speak words that will build up one another. We also gather to help each other endure to the end. In John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, is on a journey from his home in the city of destruction to the celestial city. He seeks to free himself of this heavy burden he carries, and the only place he finds the burden falling off and rolling away is at the foot of the cross. This journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city proves to be a difficult one, full of trials, difficulty, distractions, temptations, even characters he meets on the journey who tempt him to turn back or just to give up. But all along the way, Christian finds help in his time of need. 
that appears to be sovereignly appointed to help him to get to the end of his journey, the great celestial city. He finds encouragement to continue along from characters like evangelist, help, goodwill, the interpreter, and others. And all of these helps that he finds, he sees that the king of the city sovereignly put there in his path. If you've never read the book, not only is it a significant contribution to the world of literature, you will be so richly encouraged by it. One friend uh, uh, so deeply loved that book uh, who encouraged me. He reads that book at least once a year, and he's done it for like the last 15 years. Friends, you would be so encouraged if you read this book. If there's any book that you read outside of the Bible this year, may it be uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you can pick up a copy at the book cart. You can audiobook it on your commute to work. Uh, for those of you who like to audiobook, Max McLean's narration is my personal favorite, and you can find that uh, wherever you can get audiobooks. But friends, just like John Bunyan's character, Christian, we are all on a pilgrim's journey and this journey is not easy, it has not been easy, it will not be easy. It is often filled with trials and difficulty, which James says, don't be surprised when you face trials of various kinds, but consider it joy. This journey is not easy. We face temptation and discouragement. We may often find ourselves uh, like Christian did in the places like the valley of the shadow of death or even doubting castle. But do you know how God, the king of the great city that we are journeying towards, do you know how he intends to get you to the desired country? He intends to use the church. Brothers and sisters who have committed to encourage you as you journey onward. How do we help each other endure to the end? How do we help one another as weary pilgrims find rest and joy in our great king as we journey onward to the city that he has promised to lead us to? We share words of encouragement. We remind each other of what is true. We pray for another, one another. We serve one another. We bear one another's burdens. We help one another remember that our God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He is not haphazard in his care for you. He's sovereign and wise. And all that he is doing in your life right now, he is doing to bring about good in you because he has called you according to his purpose. What is his purpose? Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that you, dear saint, will be conformed to the image of Christ. Together, we help one another to look upwards to Christ and consider how he has saved us. He has saved us from coming doom and wrath. He has given us peace and joy and eternal forgiveness, a forgiveness that will never end, a forgiveness that will never expire, a friendship that he will never say goodbye to. Together we help one another remember Jesus. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, literally one of Paul's dying words uh, before his life ends, he tells young Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Brothers and sisters, do you need strength and encouragement to, the, to endure to the end? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, as preached in this gospel. We gather to help one another endure to the end. My earnest hope and prayer is to see every single one of you at the end. Some of you may reach that finish line before I do. I may reach the finish line before some of you do, but I am confident that those whom the Father has given to the Son and has given to him in his hand, none will ever pluck we will in, enjoy the fullness of communing with God for all of eternity. But before we get there, there's a second responsibility that we ought to consider, that we will not neglect to pray for ourselves and others. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul, uh, Ephesians uh, is a, a, a phenomenal letter. It's six chapters long. There's 41 commands in the book of Ephesians. 40 of them are found in the second half of the book. So the first half of the book, 
Paul does something very similar to what the writer of Hebrews does. He talks about and points you to the supremacy and magnificence and the glory of Jesus before he tells you to go do a bunch of stuff. He wants you to consider and to remember Jesus. And then he gives you the various ethics that we are to follow. One of the commands that he gives us is found in chapter 6, verse 18, towards the end of the letter, when he says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So Paul, in three, three times and in three ways, he reminds the Ephesian Christians, pray for the saints. We have promised together as members of this Christian church that we will not neglect to pray for ourselves and others. Some of us may not know the people that we are called to pray for. Your membership directory will help. But we have promised not to neglect to pray for ourselves and others. The church is to pray not just for a select group of saints, maybe those who we know best or those who we like the best or are most similar to. We are called to make supplication for all the saints. All the saints. And when Paul says making supplication for all the saints, what that means is that we ought to petition to the Lord earnestly and humbling on behalf of the saints. Praying for the saints is not a means for us to become acceptable before the Lord, See the first half of Ephesians. Praying for the saints is a means for us to commune with God and with one another because he has already accepted us before himself in Jesus Christ. He has joined us together in the body of Christ and he has called us to petition the Lord on behalf of one another. You may find that a dear brother or sister is discouraged and is finding difficulty to pray. You are called to then pray and ask the Lord to help this brother, to strengthen them, to encourage them, to give them peace. And, and, and this picture of saints praying for one another, it's not exclusively just found in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, nor is it um, just found in uh, one brief letter. It's scattered throughout the New Testament. I'll read you just a few passages. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 Verse 14, Paul says to the Corinthians, he's speaking of the Macedonian churches praying for the Corinthian Christians, he said, while they long for you and pray for you. So this Macedonian group far away is longing for and desiring for and praying for this other group of Christians in Corinth. Second Corinthians chapter 13 again, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 9, Paul says, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, which reads very similar to the letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Notice how he reminded the Colossians of a couple things. He reminded them, We always thank God for you. And he reminded them who God is, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. Paul is in prison thanking God for the gospel, thanking God for the great comfort that the Colossians are able to experience, asking God that the Colossians be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, asking God that the word would go out, even if he's bound by chains and a prison cell, he is praying for the saints. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25. Brothers, pray for us. It doesn't get any clearer than that. His prayer request is really clear. Brothers, pray for us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us 
that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Uh, The elders uh, regularly pray for the members of the church and the church as a whole. And one of the things that uh, Pastor Josh and I thank God for is that the word of the Lord has sped ahead and is honored as happened among you. So when we pray for you, we thank God for this work that he has done in your lives. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Finally, in, uh, 6, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18, if you uh, decide to take that 50 minutes to read through Hebrews today, here's what you'll see in uh, chapter 13, verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I'm going to read a couple more because you can't go wrong reading the Bible. James chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. One more. Third John chapter, or third John chapter 2. Beloved, I'm sorry, 3 John 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. I think if you uh, send an encouraging text this morning or this afternoon, uh, why don't you try 3 John 2? That you would be in good health as it, is, as it goes well with your soul. Now, a lot of commands here, uh, a lot of different examples of how Christians are to pray for, pray for one another, and it's a, a good thing to do. As you pray and as you uh, are encouraged to pray, let me encourage you again. Consider Jesus. Consider how he prayed for the saints in John 17 in the great high priestly prayer. He said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Uh, John chapter 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Do you see how Jesus is praying for the saints? He is petitioning to his father specific requests on behalf of the saints. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Amazing how Jesus made petition for the saints to God the Father before he went to the cross where he endured the shame, despising the shame. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He prayed for you, church. Jesus himself interceded and even presently is interceding for you. Well, we've considered the Son. Consider the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So Jesus prayed that the saints would be sanctified according to the truth of God. The Spirit himself intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. How then can you, dear brothers and sisters, pray for your fellow church members and others? I think that's my third time uh, highlighting this. The membership directory is the second most important book to your Bible. This is such a helpful resource for you to do the work of the ministry. Not all are called to teach. Not all are called to preach. Not all are called to pack their bags and go overseas and master a different language and plant churches overseas. All are called to build one another up in Christ. We are all called to pray for one another. 
take your membership directory. You don't have to pray for everybody in like 10 minutes. You don't have to pray really long prayers, but you can pray for one or two members, a couple of members and their families. You can use your membership directory and pray. And this is so creatively and innovatively designed that you can literally tuck it in your Bible and carry it with you wherever we go. Now, how are you then to pray? Let me give you a couple of ways that uh, we can pray together. Pray that the saints would adore God. Pray that you and your fellow members would increasingly esteem God and regard him as the highest being worthy of all praise and honor. That you and the saints would increasingly overflow with thanksgiving to God who has given us Jesus. Pray to adore God. Pray also that we would affirm God's will. Pray that you and your uh, fellow church members would humbly submit to God's will and trust him even if you and they can't understand what his purpose and what his will is presently. Pray that we would affirm God's will. Pray that we would acknowledge that God provides. It's easy to pray this and to remember this when we are in a place of abundance. It's It's more difficult to remember this when we're in a place of need. Pray and acknowledge that God provides. Pray that you and your fellow church members would trust in the Lord for their daily provisions. Pray that we would remember that all that we have or need comes from the Lord who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Ask for and grant forgiveness. Pray that you and your fellow church members would be increasingly sensitive to their own sin, to our own sin, that we would be sensitive to the Spirit's conviction of our sin, that we would ask the Lord for forgiveness when we have sinned and that we would seek forgiveness from others uh, and from those whom we have sinned against. Pray that we would be quick to grant forgiveness to others when uh, we have been sinned against. Finally, pray that you and your fellow church members would avoid evil. Pray that the Lord would keep us, we, all of us together uh, from temptation and that we would turn away from evil. No temptation has overcome us that is not common to man. Pray that when we face temptation, because temptation will come, pray that we would avoid evil. Pray that we would remember Christ and that we have been freed from the burden of our old self, that we can put off our old self, put on our new self, and walk by faith in the Spirit. Pray that we would avoid evil. Pray that the Spirit of God would increasingly mature all of your fellow members, including yourself, so that we can walk in wisdom, avoid temptation, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. Now, have you caught on to what this sounds like? If you have, I think you'll say that this sounds exactly like how the Lord has taught his disciples to pray. Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. Many of us read that as this is how Jesus prayed, but Jesus is actually instructing the, the disciples how they are to pray. So pray then like this, right? Read Matthew chapter 6 uh, this afternoon and pray for a couple of the members or maybe all of the members uh, for uh, uh, their good and for your own encouragement. Brothers and sisters, in our increasingly advancing technological and individualistic age, why do we commit to gather for worship and to pray for one another? What we do in this gathered assembly, if, it's, if it isn't clear by this point, what we do is a foretaste of what is to come. What we do in this gathered assembly is a foretaste of what is to come. We have a sliver of the pie right now, but there is coming a day when God will fulfill the work that he began in us. Notice how in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, and do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is a day that is coming that is drawing near to us or that we are drawing near to. There's a day that is coming when all of the struggle with sin and uh, despair and discouragement and death will be no more. There is a day coming that we will not have to wonder where God is. Because there is a day coming in which we will inhabit this great city of his own design, of his own construction, where he will dwell with us, where he will be our God. We will be gathered together, praising God, living in the city of God in pleasure and satisfaction, communing with God forever. We are on this journey that he will not fail to deliver us to. Where is he taking us? 
chiefly to himself. And we will be assembled, gathered, praising God, communing with God and with one another forever. But until we see the day arriving, in the meantime, until that day, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift that we have to be able to assemble together, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, encourage one another, and to do so all the more as we see the day drawing near. God, we ask that as we do this work, as we wait, as we wait for you to either take us home or come back, whichever comes first, Father, would you strengthen us and encourage us, help us to consider Jesus and that our hearts would overflow and abound in thanksgiving and hope. God, we pray for your glory, for the name of your son uh, to be magnified, and we pray that the church would be helped, sanctified, strengthened, and would be wooed to see uh, the church's groom, Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We pray that you would bless this time and encourage us all the more as we see the day drawing near. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing?